Okay, so today we are going to be finishing the book of James. It's our last week. So if you have your Bibles, please open to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we only have two verses to cover, but in order to get into those verses, we have to recap a good portion of the book here. This is kind of the bookends of James. If you remember all the way back to the first week, what we had talked about was that the purpose of James' letter is that he was communicating to his readers what does it mean to have true saving faith. Okay, so think about this. Okay, you are a Christian in the early church and persecution has come upon you. And so because of that, you and your family and other members of this Christian community have scattered abroad because it's not safe to be in Jerusalem. It's not safe to be home right now because, uh, you know, Stephen was just martyred. They're, they're persecuting the church. People are being put to death. So you're scattered abroad, and now, in God's sovereignty, what is actually taking place is that the gospel is going out to the nations, as God said it would. And so James, being the leader of the church writes this letter to the Christians who are dispersed in order that they would understand while they are abroad, what does it mean to have true saving faith? What does it mean to be a true child of God? And what we said on the first week was some things about this, which is, you know, true saving faith means that we understand and worship Jesus as the Christ. Remember, we said Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is actually his messianic title. He's a king. He's a messiah. He reigns. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so there's a spiritual implication to this, which is that we are to worship the Son as Lord of all. This title of Christ means that there is worship and honor that is due to Him because of who He is. And so James is concerned in this letter with the quality of Christian worship. Not necessarily a systematic theology of this is how, you know, this is the order of the service, this is what songs need to be sung, but more, even more foundational than that. He's concerned with the quality of Christian worship based on the behavior and belief of those who are worshiping our King. Worship has to be from someone who has been spiritually transformed. We have been brought out of the darkness of the world and brought into the light. This is that born again kind of language. We were born in Adam, which means we were born into sin and death, but we have been made alive in Christ. We've been transformed from 
the old, and now we have been made new, and we are in this process of putting on the new. And so James is concerned with that. That's why he's writing this letter. So there's the spiritual implication of Christ being who he is, but there's also a sort of um, I would say political implication. And by political, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, what's happening on Tuesday. I mean political in the sense of there's an allegiance now that we have, no longer to the world and the world's systems, but now to the system of Christ and his kingdom. Because he is king, our allegiance therefore belongs to him and to no one else. And so James is also writing about what true faithfulness to Christ looks like for someone who has been purchased and brought into the kingdom of God. And as Christians, we can have full assurance in this king, right? We can have full assurance in Christ, but this is not a blind kind of assurance. This is not a blind kind of hope. Our assurance in Christ comes from this transformed life of allegiance to the world to allegiance to Christ. So in this letter that James writes, you can look at what he's saying and say, well, okay, if this is what it means to have allegiance to Christ, is this, if this is what it means to be transformed as a true child of God, and I don't look like this, then there's a problem, there's a disconnect, And if we are going to have assurance that we are truly in the kingdom of God, if we are going to have assurance that we've been born again, that our allegiance is to Christ, that we have been transformed, then when we read the book of James, we should be convicted, we should be further transformed. But as a litmus test, you should be able to read this book and say, yes, I resonate with that. I've seen this change in my life. I believe this. I desire these things. And so let's take a look at some of those. Like I said, we have to kind of recap the book here to prepare for for the end. But this faithfulness, going all the way back to the beginning, faithfulness and trials. We We started with trials. We as Christians, we are to take joy in trials. We have to recognize that trials come upon the Christian life. Everybody goes through trials, but uniquely for Christians is we we have an understanding of uh, where these trials come from and what these trials are doing. And so because of that, we can take joy in trials knowing that it is coming from a God who is full of compassion and mercy and is working for his glory and for our good. He's refining us. He's, he's moving in us. Remember, James says, what does God give from the Father? Only good and perfect gifts come from the Father. So if you are going through a trial, we may look at that in a fleshly way and say, man, that doesn't seem like a very good gift. But remember... God knows what we need, and that rarely lines up with what we want. So faithfulness in trials and in temptation. Right, we talked about specifically the context is these temptations that arise in trials, but then James does a good job of summing what temptation kind of happens anyway, even in general, which is we have these innate, wicked desires within us. Right? A lot of times we like to blame the devil 
right? The devil made me do it. Or, you know, we, we, we like to put all this, this blame on, on somebody else. But the reality is, what James says is, where do these temptations come from? They come from within you. They come from your desires. And now Satan works with that because he's the accuser and the deceiver. So he works with that. But the reality is, is where they actually come from is from your heart. And so we have, as, as faithful Christians, we have a responsibility to, to battle these temptations. And I actually, I, I made a note here, and this is something I did not say uh, when we uh, went through this passage, but it was something that I, I just heard uh, the other night listening to a sermon about battling this temptation. Really, one of the best ways that we can battle temptation is by waking up and being thankful. And I think we actually just talked about that either a week or two ago about Randy Tomasi. He doesn't even get out of bed until he's, he's given thanks to the Lord. And then sure enough, just this week, I was listening to a sermon that my wife had put on, and it was about thankfulness. And it just got me thinking about the temptations that we face when we, when we have this desire to give in to temptation. I think a lot of times, it, some of it stems from this idea that we're not really thankful for what the Lord has provided. We're not thankful and content in what he has to offer. So what, and I'm just kind of adding to that sermon, but what is another way that we can battle the temptations that come our way is by practicing being outwardly thankful to the Lord. I'm thankful to God. Even when I, you know, start with the wrong key in a song, I'm thankful to God. Why? Because it's not even about me to begin with. And I can be thankful in the fact that sometimes I need a good reminder from the Lord to say, hey, it's not about you. I can be thankful when you have a morning where you're running late and everything just kind of seems to be falling apart. Why? Because, again, I'm not on my timing. I'm on the Lord's timing. And so when there's a temptation to get, you know, embarrassed or to get frustrated that you're running behind or things just aren't, you know, the, the day's not working out the way you planned, then we stop and take a moment and be thankful. Be thankful that you know, the Lord even woke you up this morning, that he's given you another day to serve him. Faithfulness in being doers of the word. Kind of going through uh, our list here from, from the book of James. But being doers of the word. We are to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. All right, so when the word of God speaks, when God speaks, we, we respond with Amen. Amen, Lord. This is, this is what you say. This is true. This is what honors you. This is what's eternal. There are a lot of Christians who are just mere hearers of the word, but not doers of it. And I think James would say, you know, if you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, then your allegiance lies somewhere else. Because the king has spoken. Right? When, the, when the king puts forth a law, when the king puts forth a demand, then the citizens are meant to respond affir affirmatively to that. And if they don't, then what they show is that their allegiance lies somewhere else. And then James says, you know, at the end of that, that 
It's from this word that we are shown what it means to live out pure and undefiled religion. Right? It's this loving of our neighbor, loving God, loving our neighbor, but he expresses it in help and caring for the widow and the orphan and their affliction. But he says, but keeping yourself unstained by the world. So we are to meet the needs of the people we see around us. We are called as Christians not to just kind of get in our holy huddles, but to actually be bringing the kingdom to this lost and dying world, to be helping those that are in need, spiritually, emotionally, physically. But James says, but you have to do it in a way that is unstained by the world. And so what we talked about is, you know, if you're, if you're living your Christian life, even your Christian charity out in a way that just, you know, is really locking arms with the world, then that's not a good place to be. We have to be distinctly Christian and distinctly biblical in that. Then we have to be faithful in not showing partiality. We don't lift others up above anyone else. We don't take a look at somebody who's wearing fine clothing and make prior judgments on the fact that maybe that person's more godly or maybe that person's more right than the one who comes in the shabby clothing. When we are told to love our neighbor... By Christ, the response was, who is my neighbor? That is a response of partiality. Who do I have to show love to? These people and not these people? Do I have an out if they're a Samaritan? And then Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan showing that the one who loved his neighbor in that passage was the Samaritan. Broadening this idea that your neighbor is whomever you come into contact with. Faithfulness in good works. James says that our faithfulness is um, completed by good works. Faith without works is dead. And this is contra to the easy believism that has kind of arisen in in the evangelical church where you can just walk an aisle and, you know, and get dipped in some water and then think, well, I'm good. I can kind of live the way I want to live now and do what I want to do. But James says, that's not real faith. In fact, Paul, who so many people sometimes think is at odds with James in this idea of faith and works, is actually the one in Ephesians 2 who says, there are good works prepared for you by God that you would walk in them. And so if we are believers in Christ, if we are going to be faithful to our king, then we have to recognize that we are called to a certain lifestyle of good works. Your good works won't get you into heaven, but your faith is proved by the fruit in your life. Then faithfulness in the taming of our tongue, controlling our words. i got to move quicker here, otherwise I'll spend the whole time just on this. Godly wisdom, faithfulness in godly wisdom. Right? What does godly wisdom look like? It's pure. It's from the Lord. It's not mixed with the world. 
Okay? It, it, it's full of mercy and peace. It's gentle. It's open to reason. And it produces good fruit. The wisdom of the world is at odds with the wisdom of God. Paul picks up on this again, and we're actually going to be talking about it in a few weeks in 1 Corinthians. That there are things that are spiritually discerned that if you are in the flesh, you cannot understand. The flesh cannot discern the things of God. They can only be discerned by godly wisdom. So when we approach the world, when we approach our our daily lives, we should be coming to the Word to understand godly wisdom to be able to discern what is actually going on around us, what is actually happening in our lives. Faithfulness and being an enemy of the world. We are enemies of the world. Faithful Christians cannot be friends with the world because it makes us an enemy of God. And so we have to reject the world, the systems of the world, the ideas of the world, the wisdom of the world. Has anyone seen, I can't even like quote it, but it's because it's, but I do remember there's like those signs in all those yards that says, you know, love is love and, um, it's, it's a mantra, you know, it's, it's a mantra of, of the world, and I can't even remember the rest of it. I, I should have maybe wrote it down, but it just came to mind. But. but the problem is that doesn't work in the world system, not consistently anyway. What is that definition of love? Love is love. That's, that doesn't make sense. Haven't you ever been taught in school that, you know, if you're going to define a word, you can't use it, like, with, you can't use that word in the definition? Well, that's exactly what's happening here. But of course, what happens? If you oppose something like that sign, not based on the fact that you don't think that love should be, that love is love. I agree, love is love. But I don't take my definition from you. You shouldn't take that definition from me. We go to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say that love is? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love never fails. And as we're going to see this morning, love doesn't just allow a brother or sister to continue in sin without lovingly coming to them and saying, you're wandering from the truth. And that, brothers and sisters, will make you an enemy of the world. Faithfulness in our future. Remember, as we walk this Christian life, it's not about our will. It's not about our choices. It's not about our desires. Those need to submit and come under the will of God. We walk according to His will, not our own. Faithfulness and being patient and enduring. Right? By being true to our word. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. As Christians, our yes needs to be our yes. Our no needs to be our no. And then last week we talked about uh, faithfulness in prayer. Being a people of prayer. Right? Really, what I loved about the sermon last week is there's a lot about the community of the body of Christ here. 
confessing and praying for one another, coming to the leadership of the church that they would pray over you. Faithfulness is not done individually. I mean, we look at it, and there's definitely individual aspects to it, but it's meant to also be done in community. And so this is what James says. This is what true faithfulness is throughout his letter. And so then the question that we're kind of ending with today for our passage is what do we do when someone strays from what James has been talking about? What do we do when we see a brother or sister in Christ not living according to the things that James has laid out in his letter, not living according to the word of God? We win the wanderer back. So before we go into our passage, that was a very long introduction, but let's pray now, and we'll get into our last couple of verses here. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that we could come together, and I am thankful, Lord, that we can finish up this book of James here. I pray that for all of us that we have learned a lot, that it has changed our lives, that we've been sanctified by your word. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would uh, learn from these last two verses on how to win those who have gone astray back to the Lord, back to you, in a way that glorifies you, pray, Lord, that you would uh, use me this morning for the rest of our time together, God, to, to glorify you as well with my words, that they would rely on the leading of your spirit, that I would be faithful and true to what you have said here. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, James five nineteen and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. All right, so let's... Let's parse this out. Okay, he says, my brethren, so he's continuing to speak to the church here, right, the scattered church. If anyone among you, so he's speaking in the context of fellow believers. If anyone among you, or at least professing believers, right? If anyone among you, if anyone among the church strays from the truth, some translations says, if anyone wanders from the truth or is led astray, from the truth. So what does it mean to wander? What does it mean to, to uh, stray from the truth? Now, on the one hand, it could be, in some cases, doctrinal, right? It could be about uh, things like, you know, they're straying from the truth of what God says about himself, like false doctrine rises in the church sometimes and it needs to be corrected. 
Now, that, that does happen, but I think in this context, what James is really focusing on is, if anyone has strayed away from the truth of what I have just written to you based on um, relying on the texts of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Proverbs and the sayings of Christ from his Sermon on the Mount, this is what James is basing his, his uh, letter on. And so if anyone wanders or strays from this truth... What they're straying from is not just, you know, a bad understanding of who God is, but they're also straying into unethical behavior. They're straying into a kind of lifestyle, a kind of living that is unbecoming of someone who is a Christian, that is unbecoming of someone whose allegiance is to Christ. And even though we as Christians strive for maturity... Hopefully, in our daily walk, James is very clear in James 3.2 that we stumble in many ways, right? We are all prone to wander. And when we read the end of this passage, what James is saying is that we, are, we stumble in many ways. We are all prone to wander from the way of truth. But this kind of wandering needs to be lovingly but boldly confronted. And by bold, I, I, I mean honestly and straightforward. Straightforward, honest. Filled with love. Filled with gentleness. Filled with mercy. Filled with a heart that wants to forgive and to reconcile. But also with honesty. And with a straightforwardness. So that the person who's wandering from the truth can actually know that they're wandering from the truth and where they've wandered from the word of God and how to come back. And if we're not straightforward in the way that we speak to others about these things and we try to just kind of beat around the bush and we try to maybe kind of hide some of, of what we really want to say to this brother or sister who has wandered, then we're really not even doing a good service to them. So let's look at some passages about this. The first one is Matthew chapter 18. This is, this is the process of confronting a, a brother who has sinned. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Sometimes we jump to the end of Matthew 18 when we think about church discipline. But the reality is, is, is this discipline really starts all the way back at the beginning where a wanderer who has strayed from the truth is corrected and sought to be brought back into reconciliation with the body of Christ. First, it starts one-on-one. At each point in this passage, whether it's one-on-one or two or three witnesses or before the the church, the desire is for the wandering brother to repent and to be reconciled. And this is important because the reality is the the first step of Matthew 18 probably happens 
very regularly among us, where we see somebody who is straying away, who has sinned, and we go to that brother or sister and we say, this is what I'm seeing in your life here, right? We've taken the log out of our eye first, and we come to them, and we point out the speck in their eye. We see them in sin. We say, hey, brother, this is not the way of the word of God. This is not the right way. This is, this is sinful. This is not God-honoring. And then Paul speaks about some of the consequences when someone does wander and does not repent. He says, "When this is uh, from 1 Corinthians 5, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what is Paul's motivation? He's telling them, you need to put this person out of the church hand them over to Satan because of the unrepentant sin in their life, and in this case it was sexual immorality taking place within the church, which was actually being celebrated, and then Paul instead says, no, 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 we don't celebrate this. You need to put this out of the church if they will not repent. He says, for the destruction of their flesh, in order that they would be saved on the day of the Lord. So even Paul in this excommunication of a brother, right, saying he's out of the community of faith until he repents. And the desire is that he would be saved on the day of the Lord, that he would recognize the sinful behavior here, and he would repent, and then be reconciled back into the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy Paul says, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then in Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, once would probably be when you go to them one-on-one. Twice would be when you have others that have gotten involved and he's stirring division within the church. Once you have warned him twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. See, the danger for someone who is wandering or straying from the truth, living in unrepentant and sinful patterns, is that they condemn themselves no matter what they profess to believe. No matter who they say their allegiance is with, if they're straying from the truth and continuing to stray from the truth, being unrepentant, then their life shows otherwise. And so you can pay lip service all you want to the Lord, but remember, He sees our hearts, right? So this is, these are the consequences of if we can... Well, I mean, the first consequence is that you would be put out of the church for the purpose of reconciliation. But the eternal consequence is that your lifestyle does not line up with the kind of lifestyle that James says is what a true believer has. And so that's why Paul says, if they continue in this, it's for their destruction. They have condemned themselves. So, 
James says, if anyone strays from the truth and one turns him back. See, when, when someone wanders, we've, when someone strays from the truth, we're not to leave them on the wrong path. We have a responsibility to win them back to the Lord. And James is aware that the church would need to be ready to restore people because we all stumble and stray from the truth in many ways. So, so we tend to jump to the extreme, right? We, we tend, and, and I know I kind of set it up that way. The extreme is that you continue on this path to the point where you, you are excommunicated from the body of Christ. You're put out of the church for the destruction of your flesh. But let's rewind a bit here before you get to that point. What James is talking about is that we would be involved in each other's lives to the point that if we see each other straying from the truth, which happens all the time, that we would lovingly and boldly be in each other's lives and win each other back. So when we see somebody straying from the truth, okay, and they're, maybe they're, they're, their tongue is out of control and we're starting to notice that, hey, the way that they're speaking really goes against what James was talking about with the taming of the tongue, then we have a responsibility as a brother or sister in the Lord to go to them and say, hey, look, I, I, I've been noticing that the way that you have been speaking is not honoring to the Lord. It's full of anger. It's hurtful. The point is, is we don't, we don't want to get to these last areas of discipline. Right? We, we, we don't want to get to the area of discipline where someone has to be considered like a Gentile or a tax collector. Which is why that we need to be in each other's lives, actively involved, not condemning each other when we're enticed by sin, but seeking to restore each other. So if I see someone walking in a way that's, that's you know, sinful, my, my job isn't to condemn that person my first responsibility is to lovingly seek restoration. Then he says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Saving his soul, covering a multitude of sins. I have a quote. Um, it says, To give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, we see how much Christ values such acts. But the salvation of the soul is esteemed by him much more precious than the life of the body. We must, therefore, take heed, lest souls perish through our sloth whose salvation God puts in a manner in our hands. Not that we can bestow salvation on them, but that God, by our ministry, delivers and saves those who seem otherwise to be near destruction. So what is being said here? 
Well, there's this line of understanding that leads many to laziness, which is that God is sovereign, so the salvation of others has really nothing to do with me anyway. But this is not the case. This is not how you were saved, and this is not how you are sanctified. Think back on your life. You were saved because someone brought the word of God to you. You were sanctified from the blind spots in your life because somebody, through the word of God, lovingly, hopefully, pointed it out. So we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So yes, God is sovereign over who will be reconciled to him. God is sovereign over those who would be entering into his kingdom because it's by his grace that they are saved. It's by his grace that we are saved. And he has chosen us for this salvation before the foundation of the world. But we are his instruments, brothers and sisters. We are his tools. We are the hands and feet of the gospel. And so we have been given this responsibility. And and, and it's not that, you know, um, when James says, let him know who he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's not that you, because you've pointed out the wandering of a brother or sister, have therefore saved that person yourself, but you have been used as an instrument of God to bring somebody back into reconciliation with the body of Christ. You have been used as an instrument of God to be the hands and feet of the gospel, to be a minister of reconciliation. And so even though they're not saved by your power or by your words, thanks be to God that you get to participate in the ministry and salvation that God is doing in our world. So our calling as ambassadors of Christ, our calling as those who are to be ministers of reconciliation, is not only to go out and bring the gospel to the lost, but it's also to love our brothers and sisters enough to restore them when we see them in sin. And this is hard at times because, first of all, people don't like being confronted. At least nobody that I've met. Most people don't like being confronted. Which is why it's so important that when we confront, when we see someone straying from the truth, and we go and we seek reconciliation with them, with the body of Christ, we cannot go to them with our opinions. And we cannot go to them with our worldly wisdom. We have to be building a foundation on the Word of God so that when someone strays from the truth, we meet them with truth, not our truth, 
Not the world's truth, but the truth of the Word of God. The only truth that actually exists. And so when somebody responds by the fact that they don't like being confronted, we don't point to our opinion, we point back to the Word of God. This is what the Word of God says. And I'm coming to you because you're straying from it. And sometimes, because of this process, it does get difficult. Sometimes we lose friends. One of the things that we've dealt with even in this church in the past is sometimes people didn't want to confront others or bring others in on this because it felt like snitching. And to be honest, sometimes it feels easier to just not confront somebody. It's easier to just kind of recoil and let people dig their own graves. And what a sad thing to see. Because we don't want to have to go through the process of being not liked. We don't want to have to go through the process of having a confrontation with somebody. We don't want to have to go through the process of somebody thinking that we don't sound very nice. And he says, covering a multitude of sins. He's actually quoting roughly from Proverbs 10.12 here, which says, hate stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And then 1 Peter 4.8 says something similar. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So I think what actually helps us here when we look at these other verses is it helps us even know how to confront. What is the motivation of our confronting someone who's in sin? Love. What does hate do? Hate stirs up strife. Hate is, there's a way to confront that's full of hate. And what that does is it stirs up strife because it's a lot of times what, that, what happens there is it's an exaggerating of faults. It's a proclamation of faults instead of love seeking to eliminate them. Now, this does not mean... Um, that we ignore sin. This does not mean that we, you know, help people by just kind of sweeping their sin under the rug and pretending it never happened. That's not loving because that's not seeking restoration either. Love bears with one another, recognizing, as James says in 3.2, that we all stumble in many ways. We all fall. So we approach each other with an attitude of humility and gentleness and love. And love confronts in order to bring about true repentance to the only one who can cleanse us of our sin. Therefore, our love, again, is a tool by which God brings about the sinner to repentance and salvation from his wandering. So that's our passage, and I I, I just want to end with this. I know we've gone a bit over. But when we end our time, when we end our letter in, in the book of James here, 
I wanted to recap our takeaways broadly. And really the main takeaway is recognizing that Christ is King. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And so I want to ask you this morning, okay, as you, this is, this is between you and God. I don't want to hear a, an amen or a yes. This is something to be asking yourselves as I ask you, do you believe that? Is that proclamation that Christ is King and your allegiance is to him and him alone. Is that true for you? And I said this at the beginning, that sometimes belief is a little bit of a funny word because you could even ask, like, well, what does it mean to believe? It's not just, you know, cognitive recognition. And it's because the way that we understand belief today is a little bit well, in a lot of ways, different from a biblical understanding. Because the question is, where does your allegiance lie? When you are truly believing, it's really a question of your faithfulness to Christ, your allegiance to Christ. So, are you a faithful and committed follower of Christ? And as you read through the book of James, can you earnestly say, Christ is my King and there is no other. This is the true saving faith that James is concerned with. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And the only thing I want to bring up from that passage is just those first three words. Do your best. And, and, And what I mean by that is, as you look at your life as, you, as a follower of Christ, can you, can, you, can you look at it and say, I'm zealous for you, Lord. My desire is for you. I want to seek after you. I want to follow you. I want to honor you and glorify you with everything that I have. And so my prayer is that that would be true for each and every one of us. And I I also pray that as we recognize, as James points out, that we all fall and we all stumble in many ways, that the hope would be that we would recognize that, we would respond by repenting, confessing, and running back to Christ, and that we would be a community seeking to do that together, loving one another to, to help us, restore us, on the way of truth when all of us tend to stray off of it. Let's pray.